Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians chapter 9, I'll be reading the first 18 verses. Please give your full attention to the powerful, transformative word of God. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the altar and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. In all of our celebration of our freedoms this past week during the 4th of July celebrations, It was another testimony to us of how much we as Americans love our rights. We have a lot of them. We're proud of them. We fight for them. Probably the most familiar statement of all the founding documents of the beginning of our nation are found 
in the Declaration of Independence where it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These founding fathers felt so strongly about our rights, our God-given rights, that when they wrote the Constitution, they added to it a Bill of Rights, and there are protected our rights to free speech and worship and private property and a fair trial. It says in that document that these rights are inalienable, very important word. It means that they cannot be repudiated, they cannot be denied, they cannot be taken away by anyone because they are given to us by our Creator, by the highest authority. No man can remove them. And I think that speaks to our current dilemma in our society because as a society, corporately, we have rejected our creator. And when you reject the creator, you reject the basis for all human rights. In our society, they struggle to say, on what basis do we have rights? Because they've rejected the creator. There is kind of a common understanding that you have a right to do anything you want to do as long as you don't offend or hurt your neighbor. Or in case of your neighbor happens to be in the womb of somebody, then that doesn't count. But that's not a sustainable principle upon which to base rights. It's not sustainable to base human rights within human society. And we've seen what the fruit of that is, is that those who are in power then get to define what our rights are, and that's a very scary prospect. Well, this whole section in 1 Corinthians is about rights. Paul addresses a number of different issues. As we've seen in prior chapters, he's responding to controversies and questions and disputes in the church in Corinth. And so it almost seems haphazard. He jumps from topic to topic to topic. But in this central section, there's been a unifying theme. And it's all about how we, who are disciples of Jesus Christ view our rights, both in this world and in the kingdom of God. Last time, when we were together a few weeks ago, when I was here, in chapter 8, we looked at a dispute that was going on among the Corinthian Christians about whether or not it was okay, whether there was a right given to Christians to eat meat that had at one time in the past been offered in a pagan temple as a sacrifice to a pagan god before an idol. Is it okay, the question was that came from the Corinthian church, to eat meat that had once been offered to an idol? And we saw that Paul's answer to that was is that meat is a gift from God. We have a right to eat meat, but if you have a weaker brother present, one who feels that its former association with an idol renders it somehow unfit for a Christian to eat, that somehow that's participating in idol worship to eat that meat. If that weaker brother is not fully informed, doesn't fully understand it, and if you're eating it would cause him to stumble, if it would cause him to violate his conscience, then you must give up your right to eat the meat. That's what it means to love your brother in that situation. That's what Paul said. 
And as he moves on now to other topics, what you're going to see is that that is one of the most important principles for a disciple of Jesus Christ, to deny yourself or to die to self. I'm still finding out after decades of walking in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that the very core of how I make decisions about how I'm going to live and how I'm going to interact with people today is to ask myself the question over and over and over, am I willing to die to myself? Now often when we talk about dying to self, we're talking about dying to sin. It means repenting, giving up the ways of the world, giving up the the lusts of the world, the passions of the world. And that is certainly a big part of what it means to die to self, to put off the old man. But when the Bible talks about dying to self, it's not only talking about putting off sin, it's also being willing to do what Paul's talking about in this part of 1 Corinthians, which is to be willing to lay down your rights. To be able to, to be willing to give up good things in your life, things from this world that you have a right to have, if having it, using it, speaking of it, in any way puts a stumbling block before others or interferes with your relationship with God or your calling to proclaim the gospel. That's what Paul's saying. That's the underlying theme behind all of this. Remember at the, at the end of chapter 8, the very last verse, on his last word on the meat offered to idols issue, the last thing he says is, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. That's dying to self. That's giving up a right to something good, something you're allowed to have as a disciple of Christ for the sake, the higher purpose of loving your brother and loving God and spreading the message of the kingdom. Well, here in chapter 9, if you understand all that as a background, you understand what Paul is doing here in chapter 9. What he wants to do is he wants to use his own life as an example. And so I can... Think along with Paul and what he, where he's at in his, t- in his teaching, writing, preaching here. What he's saying is, what is something very important, something very valuable in this world that I have given up because of my commitment to Christ and to the call that he's placed upon my life? Well, he goes to his work. Do you remember back, we talked in the beginning of our study in 1 Corinthians, We said that back in in Acts 18 is where you get the story of what happened. Paul was in Corinth for a very long time compared to where he was in some other locations. He was there for a year and a half. And in the beginning of Acts 18, it says that he, when he got to Corinth, stayed with Priscilla and Aquila, who were tent makers, and along with them, he also worked as a tent maker. And when he had time, when he wasn't working, he would go to the synagogue, he would go out in the marketplace, and he would preach the gospel and make disciples. That was what his ministry was like in Corinth. And so he's pointing back to that time where they knew him, where he labored so faithfully among them and planted that church and built up that church. And he says, I want you to understand what I gave up by being willing to be a tent maker. He says in verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? He wants to talk about what he gave up in that situation for that year and a half, or most of that year and a half, was his right to spend full time proclaiming the gospel. That's a right that he had as an apostle. It's a right that he had as a preacher of the word. 
It was a right that he had as what we would understand as a minister of the word to be provided for, but he gave it up for the sake of the kingdom. Now, I have to admit that this is kind of an awkward part of the passage for me to preach on. Not easy for me to stand up here and passionately say to you, God says in his word that you need to take care of me as a minister of the word. I'd rather not go there. And this church has abundantly provided for my needs and my family's needs, so it's not out of a sense of deprivation that I would preach this with passion. It is kind of a sensitive topic with me. When I was a teenager and I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I very quickly after that sensed a call to pastoral ministry, to preaching the word. And when I told my dad that, you have to understand my dad was a blue-collar guy through and through. He worked hard, got dirty, sweat a lot every day doing blue-collar work. And so when he heard that I wanted to become a preacher of the word, he told me very clearly he was convinced that that's because I didn't want to work for a living. He eventually, eventually came around by the end of his life to admit that I do work hard one day a week. (laughs) So it's a sensitive issue with me. It's hard for me to preach about the need of the church to provide for its ministers of the word. But that's an argument that Paul makes very strongly in this passage. I want you to notice that. How much effort and time he puts into convincing the church that he had this right given by God to have his earthly material needs met so that he could devote himself 100% to preaching, teaching, discipling, building up the church. He begins his argument by appealing to their common observation and experience. He just says, look at your experience. First of all, in the church, he says, is it not the case that other teachers, leaders in the church are provided for in this way. In verses 4 through 6, he points to the practice of the other churches. We'll do this sometimes in arguments we make about how things should be done. We'll look at and see how God is working in other churches, and that's what he does. He says, he lists the apostles, the brothers of Christ, and the other church leaders, and he says, do they not have their needs being met by the gifts of the churches? Their right to have food and drink, he mentions. In other words, all their basic material needs. Their right to have a wife as a companion. Somebody to be alongside of them in ministry. Don't they have that right? Aren't they exercising that right? Aren't you seeing that in the churches? I've never been quite sure what Roman Catholics do with this verse. Because it clearly states of the right of the apostles and the other leaders of the church to have a wife. He goes on to say, is it Barnabas and I? Is there something something wrong with us? Why are we the only ones that you would think would not take advantage of this right to have our needs provided for us so that we can do the ministry of the word? They had a right to not work at another job so that they could do ministry. Well, then in verse 7, he goes out into the rest of the world and, and kind of takes, he takes three illustrations from common everyday life in the first century. He says, what about these soldiers? Soldiers don't have a second job, do they? They don't go out and, or they don't spend down their savings account. They don't go out and, and get a, work moonlight overnight so that they can be a soldier and protect you and fight for your empire. They don't do that. Farmers don't get a second job so that they can go to the market to buy grapes for their family. They eat the produce of their vineyard, don't they? He says shepherds, they don't 
have a second job. They don't moonlight so that they can earn money so that they can go down to the market to buy milk for their family. They take the milk from the flock that they shepherd. And it's interesting to me that he chooses three metaphors that the scripture uses for the church. The church is an army. The church as a, as a flock. The church as the vineyard of God. And he says those who work to build up the vineyard should be able to enjoy the produce of their work. They should be able to have their needs met directly by the impact of their spiritual ministry. Well, then he says, well, that's not enough to appeal to common experience in the church. It's not enough to appeal to kind of everyday experiences where they see that in real life. He goes to the final word, which is the word of scripture. That is the final word in all matters of debate, by the way, the word of God. And that's what he says in verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? And so he appeals to God's law. What does God's law teach? What does God's word teach about providing for those who proclaim the word and teach the people of God? He doesn't appeal to the same law I would have appealed to. I would have appealed to something from the Old Testament that talked about honoring the prophets or something like that. But it's interesting the law that he chooses to back up his case It says in Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Personally, I don't like the imagery of an unmuzzled ox eating grain to to defend my case for being provided for, but Paul appeals to that. He he chooses an interesting case of law to say, you need to be kind to your animals. God cares for the needs of animals. You know, when when a um, farmer in Israel would bring in the harvest. He'd bring in all the the grain from the harvest and he'd lay it out on the threshing floor, which was a flat, hard surface in the field, and he'd lay it out on the threshing floor and spread it out. And then he'd bring a team of oxen or a team of horses and he'd hook up a, a, a large board behind them, weigh it down with stones, and then they would go around in a circle or, or back and forth across the threshing floor, crushing the grain so that the kernel would be separated from the stalk. And that's the process by which you would gain the kernel of the, uh, the, the real ultimate uh, product of your, all your work, all your plowing and sowing and weeding and harvesting. That was the, how you got the product at the end of the process. And it would be very tempting. You can understand why as a farmer it would be very tempting to put a muzzle on the ox so that he couldn't eat from your profits. You know, you would lose some of your grain because the oxen would eat it as they went about their work. It would be very tempting to do that. But God says, no, you need to care for the needs of your animal. And even oxen have a right to earn some benefit from the labor that they're doing for your sake, for your harvest. But Paul goes on to say, you know, is he he really talking about animals here? Is that ultimately what his concern is? He says, no, he's laying down a principle for all of us. He's laying down a principle for the church. He says, does he not speak entirely for our sake? And there again, he's finding an illustration of that underlying principle that those who receive the spiritual benefits of the plowing, the spiritual plowing, the spiritual seed sowing, the spiritual uh, nurturing of, of the harvest and this, the, 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 uh, the harvesting, the, the reaping at the end, those who benefit from that should be sharing the, the, what they've gained from spiritual benefit. They should be sharing in material ways, to meet the needs of those who lay down their lives to build up the church. He says it even spells it out in the law. 
You know, Paul's using a common teaching method of rabbis, the argument from the greater to the lesser, or from the lesser to the greater, actually, it's the other way around. If God cares so much for the needs of oxen, how much more does he care for the needs of those who proclaim his word? In verses 13 and 14, Paul goes to scripture again, goes back to the Old Testament again, and he speaks of the laws that set up the worship of God's people in the Old Covenant. And he says, when God called for there to be a tabernacle and later a temple, he called the Levites and the priests to come apart from the nation and to devote their full time to offering sacrifices, to doing the cleansing rituals, to receiving the tithes and offerings, to basically providing for the access to the presence and favor of God in the temple. They were devoted full time to that, as well as to teaching and proclaiming the word. And he says they were provided for according to the law, by the tithes, by the offerings, by even the, the sacrifices that were offered on the altar. These were means by which the priests and the Levites were provided for by God's people, by God's direction. And if God cares for them, how much more does he care for those who are ministers of the new covenant? Well, Paul gets to the final word, interestingly, which is in verse 14, in that part of his argument. The final word comes from Jesus Christ himself. He says, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now he's paraphrasing there, but that's the core principle. That those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. When did Jesus ever say this? Or anything like this? Well, he's clearly alluding to the instruction that Jesus gave to the 70, the 70 disciples that he sent out to take the gospel out to the land of Judea. And in those instructions, in Luke 10, this is what he says. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Whenever, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. And there's Jesus calling upon that Old Testament principle that the laborer deserves his wages. And he's applying it to his missionaries, his disciples that are going out to proclaim the word and saying, you live off the provision of the people to whom you bring the word so that you can devote yourself fully to this most important calling. Okay, Paul says clearly, he, it's an it's a, it's a ex exhaustive argument that he gives, passionate argument that he gives. He covers all the bases. Later on in talking to Timothy, He'll, he'll pull together what he said about the Old Testament law and what he says about the teachings of Jesus in one verse, in, or in two verses, in 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Unless there be any doubt, he gives his own command in Galatians 6, verse, chapter 6, verse 6, when he says, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Are you convinced? Is there any doubt that this principle is clearly in place, that those who proclaim the word, that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel? No doubt whatsoever. He's thoroughly proved his point. And I wish I could quit here. Especially if, you know, in a couple months the budget discussions are going to be starting. It would be a good place to quit, get, you know, give you proper direction as you think about next year's budget. But that's not Paul's main point. And I would be dishonest to the text if I were to stop there. Matter of fact, 
I originally split this chapter up, stopping at verse 14, but I realized if I stopped at verse 14 and left the next one for next week, he wouldn't get to his main point, which is what he says partially before, right there before in verse 12, but especially at the end. Because his main point isn't to defend his right to be provided for. His main point in this passage is how he was willing to give up that right and why he was willing to give up that right. We must be willing to lay down any rights that we have in this world or in the kingdom of God for the sake of the advance of the gospel. That's his point. The key verse is at the second half of verse 12. Paul says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. That's his point. In chapter 8, he said he'd be a vegetarian for the rest of his life. He'd give up sirloin steak. He would be a vegetarian for the rest of his life if that's what it took in order to love his brother, build him up in faith, protect his conscience, and advance the gospel. It's a guiding principle for all disciples. When you're faced with a choice between exercising your rights in Christ And advancing the gospel, there's really no choice at all. You always choose to lay down your rights and sacrifice it for the sake of the advance of the gospel. Now, Paul doesn't say here clearly why it would, if he had accepted material support from the Corinthian church, if he had allowed them to meet his material, physical needs, how that would have been an obstacle to the gospel. We don't really know because he doesn't spell that out. It could be that the Corinthian church had a lot of poverty in it, and they weren't able to both provide for his needs and also do the other aspects of ministry they needed to do. It's possible that it's a relatively new church, and he had planted the church. It's, you know, when, when he was there, he worked, so, and a lot of church planters do this. They work at another job until the church gets established, and you get people trained and, as disciples of Christ. They learn what tithing's about. It, it takes a while sometimes before you have enough giving base in, the, in a new church before a, a pastor or as his needs can be met. So maybe that's what was going on. I know for, for a fact that there was another issue in Paul's mind is that he had, in that town, in the, in the city of Corinth, there were what we would call religious hucksters there. They were people who claimed, some of them claimed to be representing Christ, some of them claimed to represent false gods, some Jewish uh, teachers, but there are all kinds of different religious teachers out there that were getting rich off of what, what Paul calls in Second uh, Corinthians 2.17, peddling the gospel or peddling their good news. He says, I'm not like that. He didn't want to be associated with anything like that. And we certainly still have people peddling both true gospel and false gospels today. Paul didn't want to be associated with that. For these or maybe other reasons, he gave up his right to a full-time income so that he could preach the gospel. And he worked long days as a tent maker so that he could be in Corinth preaching the gospel. In verses 16 to 17, the very end of our passage this morning, he points to his true motivation for doing this. And I think this is, you need to get this part of it or you won't understand the core of what Paul's trying to get across because this is the heart we all should have. Here are his motivations for advancing the gospel, for preaching the gospel. He gives two reasons. The first one is God's call upon him. Look at verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, 
that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He preached the gospel, why? Because Jesus Christ told him to. Jesus Christ called him to do this. Jesus Christ commissioned him to do this. He had no choice. So his obedience to that call was not based on whether he, how much he suffered. It wasn't based on how much he had to work at a second job. It didn't matter how difficult it was. That's what Christ had called him to do, and he was going to do it. Woe to me, he said, if I do not proclaim the gospel. Necessity is laid upon me. See, he calls it a stewardship. Every minister of the word should see their ministry as a stewardship from God. A steward was a slave who was entrusted with a big responsibility. And you were called to account for how you performed that responsibility. I firmly believe, at least for today, probably for tomorrow and hopefully for next week and a while beyond, I am called to State College. I am called to the pulpit of Oakwood Presbyterian Church. I am called to this place to proclaim the gospel. And this passage gives me pause to say, what if Oakwood all of a sudden couldn't pay my salary? What if Oakwood couldn't provide so abundantly as they have to me up until now for me to do what I do? Would I still be willing to do it? Would I be willing to go out there and work 50 hours a week at some, some dirty, sweaty job so that I could stay up to the wee hours of the morning preparing lessons and classes and trying in my odd hours to try to meet with people so that I could do the work that he's called me to do. Would I be willing to do that? And I have to come to the conclusion based on Paul's teaching here, yes, I would be. I'm glad to see there's no deacon sneaking out the back door to revise this year's budget. But I would be willing to do that because I feel that's what God's called me to do. Tent making is a honorable way to do ministry when God calls his proclaimers of the word to do that and I think in a society that's becoming more and more hostile to the true gospel of Jesus Christ we've got to be willing all of us as pastors proclaimers of the word to be willing to do tent making because that may be the way it gets done in the future so Paul has to but he doesn't want to leave the Corinthians with thinking he does it out of some sense of gritting obligation He's, he, the very last thing he says, he wants to talk about why he does it. What's at the heart of it? What's, what's driving his passion to proclaim the word? And it's not because, because of his material gain by any stretch. It has nothing to do with his motivation. And it's not only because Christ had called him and commissioned him to do it. He does it because that's become, by God's grace, the love of his life. He has no greater joy than to see his spiritual children walking in the truth. He talks in verse 18 about his true reward. He says, what then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge. What he's essentially saying there is that preaching the gospel is in and of itself its own reward. There's no greater joy than being used of God to proclaim the word of God, to share the word of God with other sinners so that they can find the grace of God and be transformed by the grace of God through the gospel like you and I have been transformed. There is no greater joy. In verse 10, he says, The plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And the crop he's referring to is the spiritual reward of seeing the word of God produce disciples and conform them to the image of Christ. 
Jesus, it says about Jesus in Hebrews 12, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He endured everything, even to the point of going to the cross, for the joy of seeing God's people redeemed, set apart, called, sanctified, and ultimately glorified. That was his reward. And those of us who share the word of God share in that reward. I want you to remember that this passage wasn't written to apostles. Paul's not appealing to apostles. He's not appealing to missionaries. He's not appealing to preachers, pastors, ministers. He's not appealing. That's not who this is written to. It's written to all of you. He's talking to congregation members when he's saying this because it applies just as much to you as it does to me. Whatever your calling is in this world, Here's the question I need to leave with you this morning. Are you willing to die to self for the sake of the advance of the gospel? Whatever that looks like in your calling, in your situation, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, are you willing to die to self for the sake of the advance of the gospel? Never forget the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul spells it out beautifully in Philippians chapter 2. Listen carefully to the attitude that Jesus Christ had to his rights. And remember what his rights were before the incarnation. He is the eternal son of God. He was seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He is the creator of all things. He's the Lord of all things. All glory, all perfection, all righteousness. He dwelt in glory. He had all of those rights. But listen to his attitude towards his rights that we are to imitate, according to Philippians chapter 2. Let each of you, Paul says, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He did not grasp his rights, but he went to the cross for the joy of of saving you and me, of making us sons and daughters of the king and giving us eternal life in the very presence of our God. All of you have been commanded to take the message of that gospel to those around you. You've all been commanded. So you're under necessity too. Woe to you if you do not preach the gospel. But I can promise you there is no greater reward than being used of Christ to bring his word to another sinner and seeing that word by the Spirit transform them. There is no greater joy. That's the best reward. It's a reward that's so valuable that you should be willing to give up anything, even the good things of this world, because they're all going to turn to dust and blow away. It's a glorious exchange to be able to take your money and your house, and your car, and all your possessions, 
and be willing to sacrifice them for the sake of the kingdom because that's taking a very short-term investment that's going to turn into nothing and turning it into an eternal investment that you'll enjoy in the presence of God forever. I do want you to think about your rights today. Yes, you need to deny yourself and die to self and stop sinning and repent of all the sin in your life, certainly. But you also need to be willing to give up the good things in your life, in this life, if that's going to advance the kingdom. You've got to be willing to do that because that's what you're called to and that is where you will find your greatest reward. Yes, you have a right to your house. You have a right to your car. You have a right to your career. You have a right to sit down and watch television. You have a right to drink alcohol. You have a right to do many things as a Christian. And as Americans, we're taught from the day we're born to grasp those rights, die for them, protect them, and get angry at anybody who would try to take them away from us. But that's not the Christian attitude towards the things of this world. What rights are you grasping in your life and not being willing to give up for the sake of the kingdom of Christ? What rights are you grasping? How much of your time and your talents and your treasure are you willing to invest in advancing the kingdom of God? As a church, Oakwood Presbyterian Church has been given an incredible opportunity. I've been in ministry for most of my adult life I've said this before, I'll say it again. I have never been anywhere where a local congregation has a bigger opportunity to have an impact for the gospel of Jesus Christ than what I've seen here in State College. We have access to one of the top 50 universities in the world. We have access to the, the brightest scholars from all over the planet. We have a tremendous opportunity to advance the gospel. What are you willing to give up to make it happen? I was tempted not to do this, but I do need to say, I mean, I'll, I'll, I don't like doing this, and I don't often do it, but I'm going to actually share some needs with you. Things, earthly time, talent, and resources you could give up to help advance the kingdom through this church, your church, the church you've made a covenant vow to, to build the kingdom through. We need volunteers to do ministry especially in our children's ministry, our covenant children, our most precious calling is to our covenant children, and we need volunteers in all those ministries. Are you grasping your rights, or are you willing to give up your rights to reach our covenant children in this church family? We need more space. I came here four years ago. I was astounded at the, that a ministry of the size that we were then was able to effectively do ministry in a building that's built for a congregation about half its size. And we've been growing ever since then. Our facilities are inadequate for to do the kind of ministry that we could do here in State College. Could we do it without any facility? Sure. But we have the opportunity to have a bigger facility to enhance the ministry. And we're going to be coming to you in the next few months telling you about how you can give up of your time and your treasure and your talents to help us get the kind of facility we need to do the kind of ministry that this church is capable of doing. I want you to be praying about that. We need more staff. We've lost some staff recently. We need more staff. We already needed more staff before we lost some staff. We're going to be coming to you and saying we need more staff. And we also need you to help more in the work of the ministry. 
It's a great church, but like any church, we have a lot of needs. I would just be asking you, as you reflect on what Paul is giving us here, his own example, he gave up his right to his full-time job of being an apostle, of being a proclaimer of God's word. He gave up his right to all that provision to advance the gospel. What may God be asking you to give up to advance the gospel in your home, your neighborhood, in this community, this part of the state, this part of the world? Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you have given. We are such a rich and comfortable and free society. And even as we have focused in recent months and years on the loss of some of the freedoms and rights, Lord, I pray that the world around us would not look at the church and see a bunch of angry people who are resentful and stomping their feet about the loss of rights and freedoms, but they would look at us and see people who are willing to give up anything in this world if it will advance the gospel of Christ and extend the effect of his kingdom. Lord, please continue this good work in our midst. Provide for the needs of this ministry, and may we have an impact that will change the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.